Well, this morning we come back to the book of Hebrews, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. You'll find that on page 1200 there in your pew Bibles. Hebrews 8, 1 to 6 will be our text this morning. I often find parallels between art and scripture. And I guess that should be no surprise, for if we rightly understand this, scripture is indeed art. It is God's word that is perfect beyond any compare. It is God's word that has been composed by over 40 authors over 2,500 years, and yet there is not a flaw in it, not a stroke which is errant. And in it, we see glory beyond anything that we can understand. But what I love about fine art, which of course is even so much more applicable in Scripture, is its depth. You initially see the beauty as you look upon a painting or on whatever type of art stirs you. Uh, And as you look at it and you see a true masterpiece, the depth just continues to unfold before you. I think this is most beautifully portrayed in a piece of music. Take one of our hymns, for instance. All of us read the words of the hymns and we enjoy the beauty of the prose. We read through those words and they can even function for us as a devotional. Hence the reason we send out our weekly email to alert you to what the text is for our Sunday service, for the preaching, but also to let you know all of the hymns because they are wonderful family devotional times. And if you have young children, it's a chance to teach them those songs and to sing with them. And even if you don't, they're outstanding devotional resources. And when we sing the melody, we see more of the beauty and our our souls are lifted to the heavens when we sing together as a congregation. But to one who reads the music, there is yet still deeper beauty. These actually know what the notes go along with, with regards to those dots and flags in our songbook. Obviously, you can tell that this is not my gift by my terminology, but they kind of look like that to me, kind of dots and flags. But these musicians, they, they understand a deeper beauty. They recognize the key signature, the bass and the treble clef. They, they know and understand the time signature. But to the one who is a musician, there's an even greater depth of beauty. Those like Andrew and those in our orchestra, they see differences in the music which indicate tempo and dynamics and other marks of musical expression and phrasing. And the difference between full score and piano score and lead sheets and chord charts, they understand the importance of dots and ties and accidentals, sharps and double sharps and flats. To these musicians, the full beauty and the artistic expression and elements of the piece is revealed and unfolded to them. Well, in the same way, chapter 8 begins the full revelation of the role of high priest and the only one who can truly fulfill that role in the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 8 begins this full revelation and with it the deeper understanding of the high priesthood. And so we begin to dive in to understand this greater depth and beauty that God is revealing to us in our text. And this is what our title reflects this morning, The Pinnacle of Purpose. 
is what I've titled our message today, The Pinnacle of Purpose. Let's take our look at our text together. Let me read the verses before we dive into them. Hebrews chapter 8. I'll read from verses 1 to 6 if you'd follow along in your Bibles. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle. For see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. The pinnacle of purpose. As we discussed last week, chapter 4 and verse 14 began our section on the high priesthood. And all the way through chapter 7 has all been introduction. A long introduction with a very specific purpose. The purpose of that long introduction was to draw the hearer into a deeper understanding of the importance of the priesthood. You see, there were many in the church who did not understand the priesthood. Now that might surprise you, and when we think of this church of the Hebrews made up of Jewish believers, that be, we just would expect that being Jews, they would understand the priesthood, but such was not the case. Some did understand the superficial elements of the Jewish priesthood, but they failed to see Jesus' priesthood. These needed to be shown the superiority of Melchizedek and Jesus' priesthood as a continuation of that superior line. Some, on the other hand, knew of the priesthood but didn't really care about its purpose. So they didn't know why they needed to care about Jesus' priesthood. These needed to understand the Mosaic law and the priesthood so that they recognized the importance of that priesthood and why it was so vital that there was a new high priest. Then they could be further elevated to see the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. Some didn't know or care about the priesthood at all. These were the unbelievers who needed the stern rebuke of our third warning passage to recognize their potential destruction. For sometimes to get our attention, we need to be taken out to the woodshed. And that's just what happened in that third warning passage, the most stern by far of anything we've yet seen. So the introduction took each of these three groups and drew them to recognize the existence of the priesthood. Verses 26 to 29 of chapter 7 became the conclusion 
of that introduction. Let's look at that just to refresh ourselves on this transition. Verse 26 of chapter 7 reads, For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people. Because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. So all of our text has moved through, all of our introduction has moved through to these points where we see in verse 26 that it is fitting, that it is right, that it is necessary that we have such a high priest. And we see the glorious remarks of what defines and the characteristics that exist in perfection in this high priest. The one who is separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. We see in verse 27 that he is not one who is like us, who has to bring his continual offering for sins. He is not a high priest who must offer sins for himself and for those of the people because he has done that once for all. That the price has been paid, that no longer is there need for further sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And then that there is a, a proclamation of the law and its appointment of high priests, but that that is weak. As we saw earlier in the text, it is weak and useless. But through the oath which came after the law, there is a son made perfect forever. And that idea of perfection is where we began in verse 11 of chapter 7. And we saw that as a, a whole unit. And it is this perfect high priest, which it is now just and right for us to have, that we roll into in chapter 8. As this concludes our introduction and moves us into the formal discussion of the priesthood, we come to our text today in the pinnacle of purpose and also our first verse, the reason, in verses 1 to 2. The reason and our title are introduced in the very beginning of verse 1, where it says, Now the main point in what has been said is this. Our author begins by highlighting the main point. The, the Greek word translated as the main thing is at the beginning of the Greek sentence to further show the emphasis. This is a whole new section and he begins with this one Greek word that says the main thing. The root of the word is the same as the Greek word where we get the word head from. It means that which is most prominent or most important. And a literal translation of this introductory phrase would be, now the main thing in that which is being said is this. The point being made is that all has been said in the introduction and all that will be said of Jesus Christ as high priest boils down to this. Okay, now when I was in college, I had some wonderful professors that knew I was a bonehead and they didn't want to fail all of us. So before the tests would come up, 
they would say, okay, next class period is a test, students. Here are the things you need to know for this test. If you don't understand Newton's law of gravity, you are going to fail this test. You need to be able to write it out, which means I expect you to memorize it. Now, I was pretty thick, but by the time I got all that, I recognized I better know this or I'm not getting through the test. That's the kind of introduction that we're brought to here. The main thing is this. All that has been said is in this one point. All of that introduction of over three chapters, all of the coming three chapters, all boils down to one point. Do you think that point might be important? I think it might be. And we're told here about that main point. The point being made is that all that has been said brings us to this one issue. And it is hard to overstate the importance of this point. Hebrews' Hebrews main theme, as we've talked about, is Jesus' superiority. And in that way, each section compares Jesus' superiority to another element. We saw Jesus compared to the angels and his superiority. His superiority over Moses. His superiority in the rest which he offers. And in each of these, Jesus is superior. And as we've seen, this is often conveyed by the use of the word better. A comparative adjective that says he's better than whatever else is being brought forward. Well, that word better is used two times in verse 6. A better covenant and better promises, which we'll get to. So Jesus' superiority is the main theme. And then Jesus' superiority over the priesthood, which is the largest section of Hebrews, six chapters. And in this is the next comparison to Jesus' priesthood. And now we're told what that main point of all that is being said about Jesus' superiority over the priesthood is. It's a massively emphatic point. We, we just can't even get our arms around it. So the question is, what is the main thing? Well, it follows next in verse 1. We have such a high priest. We could call this the most important statement in the entire book of Hebrews. We have or we possess such a high priest. The superior high priest which is being spoken about is one which does exist. And not only does he exist, but literally we possess such a one. This isn't some future prophecy yet to be fulfilled that we can look forward to and go, oh, that's going to be great. This isn't some past historic event where we can go, wow, that was an amazing story and an amazing man. This high priest lives and his name is Jesus. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like a merciful and faithful high priest. He had to understand all of our sins. He had to walk through this life as we walk through it so that he would know 
We don't have a high priest who doesn't understand our weaknesses. He knows everything about us. When you are struggling, when you have difficulties of any type in your life, Jesus has walked that road and he knows and he can commune with you and you with him. Beautiful for us to understand this. Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He is the apostle because he was sent by God to be the high priest of our confession. That is of our faith, not of the law of Moses, but of the law of faith, that which Abraham was saved by that he believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And if you and if I believe, it will be accounted to us as righteousness because of Jesus, our faithful high priest. This isn't a, a historical man who is dead and gone. Jesus lives. He is raised from the dead. This is the pivot of the gospel, beloved. Otherwise, we have a savior and religious leader like every other false religion. One who is dead and buried and his bones remain in the earth. So with Buddha, so with the many Dalai Lamas, so with Muhammad, so with every false religion. But Christianity rests on an empty tomb and a risen savior. The resurrection was the heart of Paul's gospel. It's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, where he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Our Savior lives, and he ever lives to make intercession for me and for you. And if we don't understand and if we don't believe that, we have no hope. That is the hope of the gospel. Paul later in 1 Corinthians 15 in verses 12 to 19 talks about those who don't believe in the resurrection. And it wasn't just the Corinthians. One of the greatest atrocities of liberal theology from the German Bauhaus movement in the 18th century was that they denied the miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15, 12? He says that if such is the case, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then you are still in your sins. And those of us who believe in this word are most to be pitied. For we have made God a liar if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead. But beloved, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Hebrews 7.25 proclaims that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He ever lives. Having established this critical point of the current existence of our high priest, we're now taken to two descriptions of him. In these two descriptions, we're taken into an entirely new arena. Our introduction from 4.14 to chapter 7 it focused exclusively on the high priesthood from an earthly component. 
as it should, for this was the arena in which the church lived. Those three groups that we spoke about, they needed to know of the earthly high priest before they could move on. There were to be sure elements which referenced heaven. I mean, there was the eternal high priesthood, which was quoted in Psalm 110 and verse 4, six times used in our introduction or referenced. There was Jesus' perfection accomplished through death in 5.9 and the, etern- the ensuing eternal salvation of which he's a source. And, and there was the eternal hope of heaven which Jesus first entered in 6.18-20 to 20, and even the eternality of Melchizedek in 7.3 and Jesus' once for all sacrifice in 7.27. But every one of these was surrounded in the context of an earthly existence. But the end of verse 1 gives us our first description and establishes our next comparison. Look at verse 1 again. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. One immediate contrast is the position of his sitting. No high priest ever sat. His work was always done standing. In that day and age, there was almost no work period that was done standing. And in fact, sitting was the seat of the teacher, was the position of the teacher, was the position of one who had rested Now the contrast is even more fully established. The introduction reveals the earthly confines of the priesthood and now we have transitioned from earth to heaven. This is where Jesus is seated. Again, another reference to Psalm 110.4. Hebrews began with this same reference in Hebrews 1.3 which says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Jesus was the perfect and exact representation of God the Father because Jesus is fully God. And he upholds everything by his word, the word of his power, the word which we hold in our hands. And he made purification of sins and then sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Notice the similar term, right hand of majesty on high, there in Hebrews 1.3. And then look at the distinction to our verse in 8.1. It is taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The, the comparison here is to show the term throne and, and it brings in the, the emphasis of the majesty that exists. There's a wonderful comparison here. If we were to look back at verse 26 of Hebrews chapter 7, we see this similar construction. Notice the beginning of Hebrews 7:26 says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. Now compare that to 8.1 where it says, we have such a high priest. These last sections are identical in both verses. Then in verse 27 of chapter 7, it says at the beginning, who does not need daily. The comparison in verse 1 is, who has taken his seat. 
those two constructions are identical with regards to their structure. And it's highlighting for us the comparison between the earthly and the heavenly. The term of the throne is added in verse 1 again as opposed to 1-3 because it highlights the royalty of the majesty in heavens. Something that is paramount in all that we're going to see. Majesty is this state of greatness or preeminence which is only used of God and must only be used for God. I love the translation of this in some different languages. Some languages translate that term of God, majesty in the heavens as, or the, the word majesty as the one who is truly great or the one who is truly wonderful. Is that what we think of, beloved? When we think of Jesus, do we think of the one who is truly wonderful, who is truly beautiful? That's what we need to consider the one who is truly great. This is our God. The one who is beyond compare and consideration. When we sing of him, this is why our voices must soar with all that we have. Because we are coming before the throne of the majesty on high. Because it is there that our high priest ever lives to make intercession for us. And we worship him. So our first description transitions our comparison from earth to heaven. And our second description reveals the heavenly duties. Look at verse 2 with me. A minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. Our high priest is a minister. This is the same word that's used of angels in chapter 1. But it's not our normal word for minister, which is the word diakonos, from where we get our word deacon. No, this is a different word. Although diakonos is used of one who is a servant, it has an open-ended context. Biblically, it, it typically is in the arena of service to God, but it is not limited to that. But this Greek word describes one who is expressly acting as God's servant and minister. We see that in the two uses in Romans, the one use in Philippians, plus the three uses in Hebrews all confirm this focus. The, the lexical continuity also helps us reveal our author. The idea of minister is a key point in our verses. It'll come up two times later on in the verses of this section. And the reason it is so key is because our author further divides the comparison of the priesthood. I've mentioned that the first comparison, the big comparison, is from the earthly in the introduction to the heavenly. But now we're going to see more comparisons throughout the rest of the sections up to 10.18. There actually will be six different comparisons that we're going to see. The first is the comparison of the two ministries. That's what we're looking at today. The second is going to be the two covenants compared. Then we're going to see the two tabernacles compared, the two kinds of blood compared, and the two kinds of sacrifice compared, and finally the comparison regarding the move, removal of sins. This high priest is a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle. Well, what do those words mean? 
in the sanctuary is literally translated of the holy place. One version translates this in the plural, in the plural which is accurate to the Greek text, but misses the context of the further usages such as in Hebrews 9.12. Another commentator notes, this designation is revealing the two portions of the earthly temple which are now one. We know of the earthly tabernacle and temple. There were two major divisions, weren't there? There was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies. And they were separated by the veil. What happened when Jesus Christ died on the cross? The veil was rent in two, was it not? From top to bottom? That veil no longer exists in the heavenly tabernacle. That's what we're speaking of here. Not the earthly, but the heavenly. So now it is just the holy place. There is one room, there is one dwelling. And that's what this term sanctuary or the holy place means. Thus the, the term true tabernacle is a comparison to the earthly tabernacle. We're all about comparisons here. Not that the earthly tabernacle was false as opposed to true, but it was only a copy. It was only a shadow of the real tabernacle. In fact, we could say that the earthly tabernacle was a type. That could include the, the Mosaic or the Solomonic or, or even the second temple of Ezra and Herod. The term true here is used again of the tabernacle in Hebrews 9.24. That's very important. True tabernacle used twice. We see it used again in chapter 10 and verse 22. And there it is the true heart. Two times true tabernacle, once true heart. The connection of the true heart relating to the true tabernacle in heaven is no accident, beloved. It is only those with a true heart on earth who will see the true tabernacle in heaven. This makes us pause and ask, where are we? Because it tells us that the gospel is a function of our heart is our heart committed to God? Are we pure in our hearts following of Christ? Or are we deceived? Is the heart desperately wicked as Jeremiah tells us? Are we battling that wickedness? Or are we allowing it to reign and to rule over the true tabernacle, that which Christ now sits in? So these two terms describe the one location where Christ is seated and ministering. And these the Lord pitched, not man. This doesn't mean that when we get to heaven, we're going to find a tent like the one Moses built. Frankly, when we get to heaven, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. It's going to be amazing. I have no doubt about that. But it will not be just a simple tent with the dimensions that are defined for us in the book of Exodus. What this means is that the heavenly tabernacle is just that which God erected. Not that he pitched it like a tent, but it is God who has put it up. The, co the comparison at the end, not man there in verse two, helps us see that the comparison is to the mosaic tabernacle and not to one of the temples. 
So the original tabernacle is what's being compared to the heavenly tabernacle, the true tabernacle, the holy place, the sanctuary. Why does he use the mosaic tabernacle as opposed to the Solomonic temple? Wasn't the Solomonic temple much more glorious? I mean, think of the gold. Walls just lined with gold, ceilings of gold, doors of gold. Well, where was the closest to true religion occurring? Was it not when God met with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend? This is where there was a true heart. This is the heart that we must pursue. Yes, even Moses fell short and therein did not enter the promised land. But he was God's chosen service. The pinnacle of purpose has revealed our first point, and that point is the reason. And that reason is that we now possess such a high priest. One commentator notes, the high priest we now have is one that has been exalted to heaven in order to officiate in the holy of holies above and not the holy of holies in a mere earthly tabernacle. The main point is not just the exaltation of Jesus. This is secondary. The main point is his exalted ministration in the heavenly holy of holies. For this high priestly work of his, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in the heavens as a ministrant of the holy place. The emphasis is on the noun minister. He is the choice servant of God, exalted as priest in the heavenly tabernacle, end quote. Our first point is the reason. Our second point is the role, the role. Look at verse three with me. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Verse 3 switches our high priestly reference. In verse 1, it's clearly our divine high priest, Jesus. Now we are back to dealing with the human high priesthood. We know this because of the modifying word every. There is only one true high priest, but there were many earthly high priest. So that's what's being spoken about. This is the comparison of the two ministries that we spoke of. The role of the high priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices. It is for this that he is appointed. This is the role for which he is high priest. The Greek construction shows this as the purpose clause, which makes it emphatic for the high priest. This was the main job. Yes, there were other things that they did, But for the high priest, his main role was the once per year entry into the Holy of Holies to make atonement on the Day of Atonement for the sins of the nation of Israel. Now, when we think of these words that are revealed next in verse 3, gifts and sacrifices, we need to consider carefully what these mean because it shows us much about our verse. The gifts normally would refer to the free will offerings over and above the required sacrifices and tithes. So normally when we see the word gifts used in the scripture, it is meant of the free will offering. However, 
Verse 4, as we'll see later, shows these gifts as something which is according to law. That means they are legislated. Never is that the case with the free will gift. So this would indicate that the term gift has to be more in line with, with sacrifices. But perhaps indicative of offerings which go even beyond that which is required. Dr. MacArthur notes that the two words gifts and sacrifices are closer than the normal range of meaning for these words. The sacrifices, on the other hand, were the commanded offerings for sin. So when we see sacrifices, those are the blood sacrifices that were brought as offerings for sin. This is an important point to distinguish these two, so make note of it. Then we have the contrast set up in the middle of verse 3. Here we switch back to the original high priest of verse 1, namely Jesus. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, when we read that, the switch back to the great high priest, Jesus Christ, might not be immediately evident from a first glance at the text. So it is necessary for every high priest to have something to offer. That could still be referencing the earthly high priest. So why do I say that it's Jesus? Well, indeed, it was the requirement of every Jew to bring these offerings. But there's a couple indicators that show us the change back to Jesus. First off, the words high priest, they're italicized in your New American Standard Bible, which means they are added to give the full and proper meaning to the English sentence. They weren't in the original Greek structure. In fact, the actual Greek reads as such, and you can kind of compare, follow along in your verses, that second part of verse 3 as I read a, an, a translation of the Greek text. It would say, Wherefore, it is necessary that this one also might have something to offer. Very subtle difference but significant. The first thing we note is the substitution of this one for high priest. May not be immediately convincing, but it is an indicator. It shows that there's a specificity that's being brought forward. Then there's the wherefore in our majorly emphatic conjunction. We've talked about this a number of times. We've seen it in Hebrews 2.17 and in Hebrews 3.1 and in Hebrews 7.25. And whenever it shows up, there's a major transition going on. So it tells us something big is happening here. The next indicator is the verb form of something to offer or literally might have something to offer. The verb to offer in the second part of this verse is an aorist verb. That means it's a past tense verb, i.e. the offering has already occurred. This is further confirmed by the previous use of the same verb at the beginning of verse 3 in that first half, where it is a present tense verb, means an ongoing offering. So in the first half of the verse... We have an ongoing offering. Now in the second half, we have one that is only past tense. One final clue confirms our assessment, and it is the little word that. 
a simple relative pronoun, but it refers to the gifts and sacrifices previously mentioned. Only one thing, it is singular. That means that only one of those two pairs applies. Either he offers only sacrifices for sins, or he only offers gifts, which include sacrifices, but not sacrifices for sin. Which high priest could this be? Which high priest was the one high priest who never needed to offer a sin offering? Well, it tells us that we've made that transition clearly. Well, this verse and our second point, the role, are most interesting because they don't seem to connect directly to any of the rest of the verses in the section. Look at verse 4. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer, gift, offer the gifts according to the law. Verse 3 concludes with discussing the priest's personal offering. Now, in verse 4, it speaks of the earthly priesthood and its connection to the law in what is offered for the nation. Verse 3 ended with a period as a completed sentence, but it doesn't feel complete, does it? I mean, when we look at verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, so it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Doesn't it just leave us hanging? What is it that he has to offer? Doesn't carry on in verse 4. It doesn't carry on in any of the rest of our section. Well, the reason it doesn't is because that is exactly what's supposed to happen. We should expect some discussion on what this high priest Jesus might offer, but we don't get anything. Well, don't fear, we will. The author purposefully leaves us hanging to spur on our curiosity. He is dragging us through the text. And we'll get a whole bunch more on this as we move along. In fact, you remember those six comparisons I mentioned earlier? The last three of these will answer the full measure of what offering this great high priest brought. In fact, all the way from chapter 9 and verse 15 to chapter 10 and verse 18 answer this question. But we don't get that answer until then. So really, verse 3 leaves us hanging a little bit. And we're going to leave that hanging a little until next week because we're out of time for today. But continue reading and studying those next three verses and the rest of chapters 8 to 10 and get yourselves ready, understand more about this. But really, beloved, the question for us today is do we see the pinnacle of purpose? When a musician looks at a wonderful hymn, he sees greater beauty than the casual congregant. But do we see the greater beauty in our lives on a daily basis? Not the beauty of music, although if you're listening to secular music during the week, you're missing a great deal of beauty and you're allowing a lot of your former life back in. But do you see the main thing? Do you see that you possess Jesus as your great high priest? That is, if you know him as Lord and Savior. And if you answer, yes, pastor, I understand that from our message. 
then ask yourself the next question. Do you see this on Monday morning? Do you see Jesus as your great high priest on Friday night? Do you see him as your great high priest on Saturday evening at dinner as you prepare your family for an early bed to to get good rest so they can come to church and not be sleeping through the service? What does it mean that he's our high priest? What did the priest do? His main role, we just talked about it, right? He offered gifts and sacrifices. What did Jesus do? He did not offer sacrifices for sin. He brought himself as an offering. Once for all time, the high priest through those who came of the nation of Israel brought animals to be slaughtered. Jesus Christ gave his own life and his own blood as payment for our sin. We must understand that truth. We must recognize that is the only way that we can be cleansed from our sins. All sins will be paid for because God is a just and righteous God. The question is, will we allow the paid work of Jesus Christ on the cross to cover our sins, to make propitiation as we read in Romans? Or will we decide that we'll pay for them and try through all of eternity suffering and never pay for but one. We must understand that it is his work that brings us life and that we must recognize our sin and our separation because of that, that we must turn from that sin. We can no longer live in it. We can no longer give it full sway in our lives. We must repent and turn Confess Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. That is a continual confession. Everywhere you go, people know that you are a servant of the Most High God. That you believe in his word by reading it, by digesting it, by changing your life as it exposes the sin in your life as the mirror of truth. Is he your high priest? Not just on Sunday, but every day and every moment of every day? I suspect that none of us can perfectly say yes to this. So we all stand guilty. But the Lord is more concerned about what you're going to do about this moving ahead. How are you going to make this main thing the main thing in your life? as a daily and moment-to-moment basis. Beloved, that's the real question. That's the understanding of the deeper, full, and glorious beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one more thing. You can't do this on your own. You need someone to hold you accountable. You need someone that you can speak with and share the things that are on your heart that will help you walk through this life. Because if we know anything, beloved, we know that we can fool ourselves. Make this the day that you purpose to see the pinnacle of that beauty. As you go out into a beautiful Alabama Sunday, make today the pinnacle of purpose. 
that is the pinnacle of seeing Jesus Christ, your great high priest, as the purpose of your life today, tomorrow, and every day.